We're going to be in Hebrews chapter 4 this morning as we continue our series on the throne of grace. Uh, as you are finding your way to Hebrews chapter 4, page 1003, I want to tell you uh, about something that's kind of embarrassing. About a month ago, I was hosting a Zoom meeting with, with a few other pastors, and I had set up the meeting, I had scheduled the meeting, I had sent out a reminder the week before, I had looked at my phone that morning and thought, oh yeah, two o'clock, have this Zoom meeting. Um, Pastor Matt and I had gone out and met with some of our other support staff, we were looking at a, at a potential new ministry opportunity, and, and it was exciting, and so I got back to my office, and I was all excited about it, and I'm typing it up and summarizing it for the elders and deacons and pulling together, and, and I'm just like lost track of everything but this potential new ministry opportunity, and, and I, all of a sudden, I hear my phone start buzzing and dinging, and I'm like, I don't know who's getting a hold of me, but I got to get this all out while it's fresh on my mind. About 20 minutes later, I look to see what all these pings and dings were on my phone and realize that these pastors are texting me saying, where are you? You didn't send a Zoom link. We're supposed to be meeting. What's going on? And you just have that sinking feeling, right? Like, oh my goodness, not only am I late, not only did I drop the ball, but these guys can't meet without me. I'm running the meeting. Does anybody know that feeling when you miss something super important, you drop the ball on a meeting, and you just, your heart sort of sinks? You guys know what I'm talking about. Anybody have sympathy for me? Like, you know, because you know that. Thank you. Thank you. Now, raise your hand if you're just shaking your head, thinking you're a numbnut. Like, why would you miss that? I have no sympathy for you. Get your, get your act together. Some of you may, may react that way, but hopefully you're sympathetic. And many of you are sympathetic because you've been in that situation or something similar where you drop the ball, you miss something important, where you let other people down, and you know that feeling. And so hopefully you have some sympathy, some compassion for me. Compassion and sympathy are crucial character traits. Here's how I define sympathy. Sympathy is sharing in someone else's feelings, right? You're agreeing and identifying with the emotions that somebody else is experiencing, and usually it's some kind of painful emotion, right? Usually we talk about sympathy as it relates to sadness or some kind of loss or embarrassment or fear or confusion, right? Usually the emotion that you're sharing with is a, is a difficult emotion. You're not sympathetic when somebody's joyful or excited. You might share in that with them. But sympathy is a sharing in a hard emotion, a hard experience. It, it, our English word sympathy actually comes from the Greek word that's in our text this morning, sympathio. And, and the Greek concept of sympathy actually also includes compassion. So the idea is that you're not just sharing in someone else's pain, but, but sharing in their feeling is stirring in you a disposition, a desire to help them. Compassion is the desire and the urge to alleviate their pain, to alleviate their distress. I believe true sympathy is, in, is, is part of compassion, is, is part of true sympathy, the desire to, to not only feel what they feel, but to come to their aid. And we're going to see this morning in Hebrews chapter 4 that Jesus, our Savior, is sympathetic toward us. This is the sixth week we've been in Hebrews. We've seen that the author is showing us how wonderful and superior our Savior Jesus is. And he's been stirring us in these first chapters to draw near to Christ. Stirring us to hold on, to hold firm to him. We saw last week this call to rest, that God has promised rest to his people. And we taste rest now in Christ, in the Lord, through Sabbath rest, through the presence of the Holy Spirit. But one day in eternity we will drink fully of God's promise for us to find rest. 
But as we turn to chapter 4 this morning, we're going to pick up in verse 14, and we're going to turn to what is, you'll see, a major theme in the book of Hebrews, this theme of Jesus as our high priest. We're going to see again and again this idea that Jesus is our high priest. A priest is a mediator, in essence, a mediator between God and humanity. So you think about it in human terms, if two, two parties, whether it be a business partners or a husband and wife, if their relationship is torn and broken, then and they can't fix it on their own. You may hire or you might evoke a mediator to come stand between the two broken parties, right, to negotiate terms of peace, whether it's a, between nations, between business parties, between spouses. The idea is that this mediator is working towards reconciliation. This is what a priest is doing, standing between us and God. See, here's the reality. God is holy. God is good and pure in every way. And humans, all of us are fallen. We're broken. We're sinful. And so we now have this hostile relationship between us and our creator. And unlike in a human relationship where you have a disagreement with somebody, usually both parties are at fault, right? Both parties share some guilt. With us and God, all the guilt is on us, right? And no human can approach God on our own. We cannot be close to God on our own. We have a desire, I believe, for relationship and connection with our creator, but we cannot have that on our own. We need a mediator. We need someone to stand between us and our creator, Us and the Lord God. And this is the role of the high priest in ancient Israel. In ancient ancient Israel, there were these group of priests that were called and anointed by God. They worked in the temple. They made sacrifices. They led the people in prayers and in worship. And it 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 was a symbol. It was a function of the fact that the people couldn't approach God on their own. They had to go through the priests. And prayers and worship and and prayers were offered through the priests. And there was one priest, the leader of these collection of people, the high priest, and he was particularly set aside for special duties to atone for the sins of the people, to represent them before God on on Yom Kippur, on the annual day of atonement. And we see the role of the high priest in Israel. And Hebrews is going to show us that Jesus, the Son of God, our Messiah, is the fulfillment of the role of the high priest in the Old Covenant. Now, we need to keep in mind that while all this talk of priests and sacrifices, that's all a thing of the past right now. But when Hebrews was written in the early church, this is before the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 AD. And so there was still a very strong priest-centered Judaism in and around Jerusalem and Judea, very prominent. And so these first century Hebrew Christians, as we've seen so far in the book, they're facing pressure, they're facing persecution, they're struggling with doubt in their faith, and they're looking to Jerusalem and they see the stability, the culture, the tradition of these hundreds of years of priests and sacrifices in temples, or, or a temple. And it was a strong appeal, right? Like, maybe Christianity isn't where we should be, maybe we need to return to the ritual and to the leadership of the high priest of Judaism. And so they're feeling this pull. And so so the author is going to argue today and several other passages, no, no, Jesus is our high priest. Jesus is, as we've seen, he's greater than the angels. We saw that in chapter 1. We read in the book of Hebrews how Jesus is greater than Moses. And we're going to see this morning that Jesus is greater than the high priest. There we go. So a little summary so far of the book of Hebrews. Jesus is greater than the high priest. And what's most profound and what I think is most exciting about our passage this morning is our high priest is not distant. 
He, he doesn't stand off and atone for sin in a disconnected way. Listen, hear this. He knows you. He understands you. He knows your sin. He knows your weakness. He is sympathetic towards you. He is a sympathetic high priest. So let's read this passage of Scripture from the Word of God in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14. We're going to spill over into chapter 5. And Lord, I just ask you to, to bless us, to bless the reading of your Word. Give us grace Send your spirit to help us understand your word this morning. In Jesus' name. The word says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, You are a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who believe, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. So verse 14 says that in Jesus we have this great high priest, a wonderful high priest, who came to earth in human form like us, who lived a righteous life, who died to take our punishment, who rose again to bring us new life, who ascended back up into heaven as our representative. And as I said, the highlight of the role of the high priest in ancient Israel was Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, when the high priest would pass through the curtain in the temple, separating the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple. And in the Holy of Holies dwelled the Ark of the Covenant, where the presence of God rested. And he would offer rituals, and then he would leave. He would, he would enter the Holy of Holies, and then he would pass back out. But verse 14 says that Jesus hasn't just passed through an earthly temple. He's passed through the heavens, right? He's gone into God's presence. He sat down with the Father. He's seated with God on this throne of grace. Not a temporary earthly ritual, but a heavenly, eternal victory. And so since he has done this great work, we're called in verse 14 to hold firm our confession of faith. Again and again, we're reminded that Christian, don't waver. Don't drift away. Don't fall away, the author has told us. Draw near to the living God. Draw near. Hold firm to your confession of faith. Hold firm to God's grace. And 15 says that we can hold firm. We can draw near to Jesus. Why? Because he's sympathetic. He's sympathetic to our plea. We don't have a high priest who's just sort of heard about what we went through but can't really identify can't truly sympathize with our weakness. Listen, Jesus was tempted in every way that you have been tempted, but he never gave in to sin. 
And, and there's a bit of a mystery in understanding, but the scriptures teach that Jesus is and was fully the Son of God. He came to earth in human flesh, remaining the Son of God, but he on earth experienced the full range of human experience, the full range of human emotions. He understood all the weaknesses of, of an earthly, fleshly body. And while he was on earth, he was tempted, tempted by greed and idolatry and lust. He was tempted at times to lose his temper, tempted to speak in a demeaning way to others, tempted to, to give up and be apathetic. But Jesus never once wavered. Verse 15 says, he faced circumstances similar to what you face in your life and probably far worse, but he had days of bad weather when he had to be working in it. He had long, hard days where his body was, was hurting and tired and, and, and sick. He experienced the death of loved ones. He experienced life not only under an unfair government, but an oppressive government. He experienced what it's like to be financially strapped. He had siblings who didn't understand him. He had disciples who wouldn't listen to him. There were officials that were out to get him, and he faced the direct onslaught of the devil. And all of this created temptation. It tested him in every way that you have been tested. And so it's not hard for him to sympathize with us because he knows what it's like. He can sympathize with every feeling you've ever experienced because he's felt them himself. He's been tired and sad and frustrated and angry and afraid, but he never once gave in. He never once dipped his little toe into the waters of sin to say, I wonder what it would feel like to just lash out one time. I wonder what it would feel like to look one time. He never did. He stood strong. He defeated every temptation. In fact, his temptation was worse than you or I because, you know, we get tempted a little bit and half the time we, we give in. Jesus stood and stood and stood against the temptation of the devil, never giving in, standing firm, facing everything that could be thrown at him. And so, of course, he can sympathize with what we go through. And every single temptation is ultimately a test, and it can either tear you down and pull you further away from God, or a temptation can build you up and draw you closer to God. See, for Jesus, every feeling... Every experience, every human condition, every temptation ultimately drew him closer to his heavenly Father. And so verse 16 says, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Because he is sympathetic, we can draw near with confidence. See, even though Jesus is now sitting on this glorious royal throne in heaven, he's seated in victory it's a throne of grace. He is ready, he is willing, he is able to pour out mercy and grace to you and I in our time of need. Again, we're not talking about some savior that's distant, that's unrelatable, or that's stuck up. He's walked in your shoes. And so we can draw near in confidence. We can be confident that through faith in Christ, through his work, you're forgiven, you're washed clean, you belong to him. And so even when you fail, you're not condemned because the high priest has already atoned for your sin. He's already given you his righteousness he sympathizes with your weaknesses. He sympathizes with the struggle and the difficulty and the frailty of life on earth. But unlike us, he knows what it is to stand firm in any and every situation. And so because he can identify both with the human condition and he has overcome the human condition, he can both sympathize with us and also give us the grace that we need. Do you see that? He understands, but he's not just going to leave you there and say, yeah, that's, that's really bad. I'm so sorry. No, he's saying, now let me help you. Let me give you the mercy and the grace that you, that you need. And when you fail and you need forgiveness, there's mercy. 
And when you're struggling and you need strength or peace or direction, you receive God's grace through the work of Christ. And each of us need this, whether it's your personal struggle, whether it's family. And, and even though I, I believe that, that we can now say we're, we're post-pandemic, the reality is that there is so much collateral damage that I believe is still inflicting the church, still inflicting the culture, still inflicting God's people. And if you don't have teenagers, all you have to do is talk to a teen or talk to parents of teen. Our teenagers are still being impacted, still struggling. And rates of anxiety and depression and thoughts of harming themselves are are through the roof. And kids are struggling to connect with one another. They're crippled with indecision because for two years they they couldn't, didn't, didn't, couldn't decide anything. And so now they've, they've struggled. How do we live? How do we make decisions? But it's not just teens, adults as well. Again, we see stress and anxiety, social anxiety. Many, many people that struggled socially before the pandemic, and then they they were removed for six months, a year, two years, from from the practice of connecting and interacting, and now they're thrown back into work circles and church circles and social circles, and it's a struggle. And I'm not just reading statistics. I'm talking about people that I know in our faith community that are dealing with these things. Cultural and political tensions and divisions are still skyrocketing. Marriages that have always struggled, but it seems like more than ever, marriages are strained and struggling, and and, and divorce is becoming an option for many. How how about work-life balance? I feel like it's a thing of the past. Some of you love working at home, but for others of you, it's this suffocating weight where you're always at work 24-7. You never get the ability to log out and go home. And we're all still dealing with staff shortages in every industry. And and many of us are stressed out with confidence. Draw near to the throne of grace. That you may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. These things are real and this promise is real. Jesus is sympathetic he suffered, he was tempted, so that, so that you can find mercy and so that you can find grace to help in time of need. In chapter 5, verse 1, the word goes on. It highlights the reality that every high priest is chosen from amongst humanity, a member of, of the human race and appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, verse 1 says. Again, as I said, the high priest is a mediator between the people and God to act on behalf of the people, appointed by God to represent the people before him. Chosen. The high priest was chosen to offer gifts of worship, to offer sacrifices to atone for sin. Now again, in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament, that was done through sacrifices of of lambs and goats and bulls and birds and at times grain offerings and wine offerings. But this high priest was chosen and was appointed. He didn't step into this role on his own. If you look down at verses 4, 5, and 6, it explains this further. No one takes on the role of high priest of his own initiative. The high priest can only be called and appointed by God himself, just as as Aaron was. Aaron was Moses' brother, right? Aaron led, or excuse me, Moses led the people, was the, the prophet of the people, and Aaron was the first high priest, chosen and appointed by God. And so verse 5 says, in the same way, Christ didn't exalt himself to the position of high priest. He too was appointed by God the Father. He quotes from Psalm 2-7. It's like the third or fourth time he's done it in the book, right? Reminding us that, that God calls Jesus his son. 
And then in verse 6, he, he references a different psalm, Psalm 110, verse 4. What's interesting is that Psalm 110 is a psalm that Jesus himself referenced during his earthly ministry to defend his own messianic identity before his adversaries. But the author here uses it and applies it in saying this verse from Psalm 110.4 is fulfilled in Jesus. These words, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, as, as much as some of you would just like to skip over that reference to Melchizedek because it's a little complicated, here's the deal. Melchizedek is a priest king that we read about in Genesis 14 that Abraham interacted with. And, and this priest king is described as being a servant of the Most High God. And Hebrews 7 is actually going to go on to great detail about this mysterious figure, Melchizedek, and why Jesus is like him. But suffice it to say for now, Melchizedek was not a regular priest in the line of the priests of Levi. He was not a descendant of Aaron. And so Jesus, who was also not in the family line of Aaron, he's from the tribe of Judah, not the tribe of Levi, Jesus is also a priestly king like Melchizedek from a different line, from a different order. And as verse 10 said that we read earlier, he was designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Now more on that in three weeks. But back to, back to where we are, the author is proving Jesus truly is anointed, chosen by God, right? Again, these early Christians are likely facing criticism from the Jewish leaders that they have left the Jerusalem worship, they've left the authority of the high priest, and, and they're claiming Jesus is a high priest, but he's not from the tribe of Levi, and they're probably saying he hasn't been appointed by God, and so the author is making clear, no, he has. He is the son of God. He's a priest after a different order, the order of Melchizedek. And he, in the same way, has been appointed to represent his people before God. Again, this idea of mediators, that the priests served as mediators between God and the people. And they need it, don't they? How are the people described in verse 2? They're described as ignorant and wayward. Right? Ignorant means that people that lack understanding, that lack knowledge of the ways of God and the will of God. People that are wayward. To be wayward means you go astray. You're misguided. You think that, that this is going to help you, but it really hurts you. You think that, that this is, is, is best, but it really ends up in pain and destruction for yourself, for those around, around you. It offends God. The people are ignorant and wayward. And so the priests in the Old Covenant were, were appointed to represent the people. A bunch of ignorant people. They had to continually have sacrifices offered to atone for their sins again and again for these wayward people. And, and verse 2 is, is making this interesting point that you would think that eventually the high priest would get worn out, that he would get frustrated and irritated, that he might eventually get a little judgmental. Like, why do you keep coming to me, confessing your sins, needing another sacrifice, needing me to slay another lamb for your sins? Why don't you people just get your act together? Haven't you learned by now? Why every day do we have to atone for sins and make sacrifices? But the priest doesn't react like this, verse 2 says, or at least he shouldn't. He should deal gently with the people. Why? Because he himself is beset with weakness. The phrase there in the Greek means that even the high priest is covered in weakness, he, he should be gentle with the people because he knows that he himself has sins. See, in ancient Israel, the high priest was a fallen man as well. He too was part of the same people that were plagued by sin. He too required constant forgiveness. And so verse 3 says, because of this, even the high priest has to offer sacrifices to atone for his own sins. 
And he would literally have to go in and, and atone for his own sin, cleanse himself, and then minister his responsibilities as a representative of the people. And so this, all I think the author of Hebrews is, is sharing this really for two reasons, two things he wants us to see in these verses. First of all, I believe he wants us to see that Jesus is a priest like the priests of the Old Covenant, that Jesus is also chosen by God, appointed by God on your behalf, that that's why Jesus came to earth took on flesh, born as a human, to represent you before God. By the way, for those of you that struggle to believe that Jesus may be the only way to heaven, the only way to be reconciled with God, for those of you that struggle to believe that maybe there are other religions or other ways or other people that that can find God, I assure you of this, Jesus would not have come. He would have never come to earth, taken on flesh, faced temptation, died on the cross for your sin if there was any other way. There is no other way. And that's why he came, to be our representative. And so Hebrews 2.17, we read this verse a few weeks ago. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people, to offer himself as an atonement to receive the punishment on our behalf. And so verse 1 says, he acts on your behalf before God. He is your advocate, friends, your mediator been appointed by God to stand and represent you and to say, these are my people, they belong to me, and my work applies to them, and my death has canceled out their debt, and my resurrection is now their resurrection. And so he stands before God and says, Father in heaven, as you love me, as you know me, as you receive me, receive them because I represent them. Appointed by God. But secondly, I think the author of Hebrews wants us to see that while in many ways Jesus is like the high priest, in many ways he is not like the high priest of the old covenant. He is better. See, because unlike the priests of old, Jesus didn't have to atone for his own sins. He didn't have to make ongoing daily animal sacrifices. He didn't make sacrifices that symbolized atonement for sin. They were just a frail shadow of what was coming the once and for all sacrifice. He was the once and for all sacrifice. He was what the Old Testament sacrifices foreshadowed. In chapter 7, the author is going to make this abundantly clear. I, I, love, I love how the author writes. It's like every chapter is related to every other chapter. Look, look what he's going to say in verse 7. He's going to articulate this even, even further. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest Jesus, who is holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens, he has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. Our Savior is perfect. Our high priest is without sin, and yet he's faced every temptation you've faced. He's faced every struggle you've faced. He's walked as a human on earth. And even though he can't identify with our sin because he's never sinned, he can identify with your temptation. He can identify with the weakness of human flesh. He can identify with your emotion. And so he is sympathetic and he's gentle. Right? He's a sympathetic priest representing you. And so the call, first of all, is to put faith in him, to trust that that his death is your substitute. He died in your place to trust that through his resurrection you can be born again. You can be full of the Holy Spirit. But he knows what it is to stand firm. Right? See, sympathy is easy. Like if you've been late to a meeting or you've missed 
an appointment or you let people down, it's easy for you to sympathize with me, right? An alcoholic can always sympathize with another alcoholic. They know what it's like. They know what it's like to not be able to control themselves. They know what it's like to lose their family. They know what it's like to be arrested for a DUI. They can sympathize with somebody who's also battling addiction and substance abuse. But Jesus doesn't come to us as a fellow alcoholic saying, yeah, it's really terrible, isn't it? And let's sit for a, a moment and, 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 and grumble together and moan together about how we'll never beat this. Jesus comes to you with sympathy in victory. Not despondent, but in victory. Identifying with your temptation in a way that is gentle. From a place of victory and hope. And so as it said in verse 2, just as the high priests should be gentle, Christ is gentle. He's not angry or harsh. He, he will never come to you and say, I can't believe you did that. Because he can believe it. Because he knows what it's like. He's never like, you know, I'm so sorry, I remember what it's like on earth. But it was really easy. No, he, he knows the challenge. He comes to you and says, he says, I'm so sorry you found yourself in this place again. I remember what it's like. I understand the pressures of sin. And he says, that's exactly why I came. That's exactly why I came to die and rise again, to set you free so that I could fill you with my spirit. And he comes to you and says, be comforted in your place of need. Be comforted because I can rescue you out. Draw near to me and you'll find forgiveness. Draw near to me and you'll find mercy and grace to help in time of need. And so he sympathizes not as one who is defeated, but as one who has victory and now can help you. And so often we find ourselves in times feeling like, you know what, I can't share my sins. Because Jesus just won't understand. And I, and I think, brothers and sisters, I think the inability to be, for us to be open and honest with one another, the inability for us to, to truly confess and to ask for help from one another is often an indication of our unwillingness and our lack of humility to do that before God. To say, God, I'm, I'm, I'm messed up. And that feeling like I can't possibly go to the Lord with what I looked at last night, I can't possibly go to the Lord with those things that I'm thinking in my heart and in my head about my spouse. I can't possibly go to the Lord and confess to him the way I've been acting in my worst place because he won't understand. He does understand. And that instinct in you to want to wanna run away, to want to hide, to think that, that Christ is going to be harsh with you. And, and I don't know why, but I thought about this story. Anybody ever have an electric lawnmower before they had batteries when you had a plug and you had a cord, right? And if you did it the right way, Mike, you would, you would start close to the house, you'd plug in the cord, and you go down this way, remember, and it had the little handle. You'd flip over the handle, and then you'd go the other way. And as you mow, you're getting further and further away from the plug, right? But I didn't know what I was doing, and so I would run over the cord, right? And I wouldn't be paying attention. I'd have the cord on the wrong side, and I'd run over it. And my father would have to teach me, here's how you repair the cord. Right, here's how you patch it up. Do better next time. And I remember this one time, just those weird, vivid memories you have. I was probably 12 years old, and I was in the front yard, and I ran over the cord. And it had probably just happened the week before. And I immediately, do you know what I did? It was the stupidest thing. I stopped, I let go of the lawnmower, and I just ran upstairs. And I ran into my bedroom. Like, I left the evidence sitting right there. But I knew my dad was going to be home soon, and I couldn't bring myself to stay in the front yard and to face him getting out of his truck and to see what I had done yet again. And uh, it was just an irrational instinct to just go and hide, and maybe it'll go away. Maybe he won't see it. And my father got home, and he came upstairs. He said, Tim, what, what's up with the, the lawnmower and the cord? 
I said, I showed you how to patch that, right? He said, yeah, Dad. He said, okay, well, you're going to need to go down and, and patch the cord and, and finish up the lawn, and it'll be okay. Now, my father was not nearly as gentle as Jesus is with us, but don't, don't run and hide. Don't be afraid. He knows. He understands. He's sympathetic, and he will come to you, and he will not only identify you, but he will empower you to overcome your ignorance and your wayward heart. He will give you understanding. He will give you the knowledge that you need to walk in the will of God, and he will overcome that desire in you to go astray, the misguided instincts that think that, that these types of things will actually be fulfilling when they're really not. He will empower you with his spirit. He will give you mercy and grace to help in time of need. He's a sympathetic high priest who has not only taken your sin, who has not only represented you before the people, but now he comes to minister in a way that is gentle, and you can trust him. You can trust him because he is the source of our salvation. Look, look with me at, at verse 7. Verse 7 talks about Jesus' earthly ministry. It says that Jesus offered up prayers and supplication. That's a fancy word for he was making appeals to God. And we get this picture of Jesus crying out with a loud voice through tears, crying out to, to, to God, knowing that God could save him from death. And most commentators agree that verse 7 is referencing Jesus praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. And the night before, Jesus was going to die on the cross. And, and by the way, I don't want to minimize the physical beating. I don't want to minimize the physical excruciating pain of crucifixion. But I don't think that's what Jesus was most afraid of. I think he was most afraid of, of, of carrying our sin, of facing the wrath of God, of, of knowing for the first time in eternity the displeasure of his father, the anger of his father because he was going to represent us. And so he begged God. He literally got down on his knees and wept and cried and said, God, if there is any other way, let this cup, that cup there is a, is a prophetic poetic symbol of, of drinking the wrath of God. God, if there's any other way, Jesus begged, let this cup pass from me. But then he said, but ultimately, God, not your will, not my will, but your will be done. And he said, Father, if it cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And so he prayed out to God. He cried out to God. And verse 7 says that he was heard by God because of his reverence, because of his piety. Now you might think, wait a minute, wait a minute. God didn't hear him. He got arrested like a few moments after that. He, he, he died on the cross the next day. Why would the scripture say that God heard him? God clearly didn't hear him, clearly didn't answer his prayer. Just because God didn't save him from imminent death the next day doesn't mean he wasn't heard. In fact, when Jesus asked his father to save him from death, that prayer was actually answered three and a half days later when he rose out of the tomb Sunday morning. It, it only seemed like an unanswered prayer. But in the wise words of the great theologian Garth Brooks from 1990, he said, sometimes I thank God for unanswered prayer. Remember when you're talking to the man upstairs that just because he doesn't answer doesn't mean he don't care. Some of God's greatest gifts are unanswered prayers, right? An unanswered prayer is really just what feels like an unanswered prayer to our experience. And it is often God just answering us in a different way. Just because he doesn't give you what you want when you want it, the Lord Jesus still had to face death the next day, but God heard him, God was with him, God walked with him, and then he gave him triumph three days later. 
And so sometimes what feels like a no, what feels like God not listening, is just a not right now, or just a let me give you something later, or just a, I actually have something in mind that's far better, right? How many of you can experience that in your own life? You look back on some of those prayers when you were younger, and you think, thank God he didn't give me what I asked for. Thank God that that relationship didn't work out with that woman that I thought I was in love with, but... God gave me something far better. Thank God that I didn't get that job because that company went bankrupt two months later. Thank the Lord that he answered my prayer in a way that I didn't expect. And Jesus models that. He models that passionate, intimate, reverent prayer. But not only does Jesus model that prayer for us, we can now lean on him to pray with us, to pray for us, to intercede on our behalf. Tim Keller says, God will... Either give us what we ask for in prayer, or he will give us what we would have asked for if we knew everything he knows, right? He's got perspective far beyond our ability to see. And so he gives us what you would have asked for if you simply knew what he knew. But the Father always hears the Son because they're Father and Son. Verse 8 says he's always and always has been and always will be the Son of God in his close, personal, intimate connection to God. And although Jesus had the privilege and the status of God's Son, he emptied that. He emptied his position. He came to earth. He suffered for us. That through the suffering of this life, what does it say in verse 8? He learned and grew in obedience as a human being. See, Jesus likely always will, always, always did remain obedient to the Father. And he proved that because he was obedient even unto death. He submitted himself to death. That he, he learned obedience even all the way to the point of death, proving and showing that he was submitted to the Father. And so verse 9 says he has been perfected through suffering. His purpose has been completed as we discussed in chapter 2, Jesus was perfected in his purpose, purpose through suffering, completed as a Savior. First, Hebrews 2.10 says that it was fitting for whom and by whom all things exist and bringing many, many sons to glory that he should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Jesus is the founder of your salvation. Verse 9 in our passage says it like this. He's become the source of your salvation. That means Jesus is the one responsible for your salvation. He's the cause of it, the source of it. He's the source of eternal salvation for everyone who obeys the gospel call, who obeys the call, come to me and you will find forgiveness. Come to me and you will be a part of God's family, adopted as a daughter, adopted as a son, washed clean, welcomed in, full of the Holy Spirit. See, just as Jesus obeyed the Father's will, we too are called to obey the Father. But rather than, than find death, as Jesus did, we find life. And so the call, is, is to fa- the call to faith is a call to obedience. One commentator said it like this, Faith is itself an act of obedience. Everyone who hears the gospel is obligated to believe it as a summons, a command from God. Any response other than belief is a form of disobedience and rebellion. The gospel is more than an invitation to be saved by faith in Christ. It is a command to be obeyed. See, Jesus is the source of eternal salvation to everyone who obeys, to everyone who has faith. He is our sympathetic high priest. 
He became a man for you, faced temptation, suffered so that you could receive mercy and find grace to, to help in time of need. He was appointed by God as your representative to represent you in your weakness, to be gentle with you, sympathetic with you in the midst of your ignorance and waywardness. And friends, he suffered for you and I so that he could be the source of our eternal salvation. And so as the worship team comes and we close out, let's turn our hearts, turn our our eyes, turn our focus, turn our desires to the source. See, listen, it begins and ends with him. This Christian life of walking in faith with God is not something you do on your own. He is the founder of your salvation. He is the source of your salvation. And he knows you. He understands you. He is sympathetic to you. And so look to him. Walk with him. Go to him now. Father in heaven, we pray that even as we sing, even as we close out this song of worship, that you would draw near to us. That in your presence we would find grace and mercy. In your presence we would find gentleness and sympathy. Lord, forgive us for the ways that we have doubted your promises, where we've run away, where we've hid, where we've thought that you were going to be angry or not understand. Lord, we recognize now that Christ is our source. He knows everything we've been through. Help us now to be open, to be honest, to be raw before you, to to confess our sin and to receive the forgiveness we so desperately need, to receive the help we so desperately need in our homes, in our hearts, in our workplaces, in our communities, in your world. Help us to be men and women of obedience and of faith that we could stand and be a light and be a hope to those in need, that we could, could, could bring the sympathy that Jesus has given to us to others to offer them the gentle grace of God. Stir in us now as we sing. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.